You're listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. In this episode, editorial director Betsy Gomez talks to cartoonist Raina Telgemeier, and we speak to Alex Segura, who's the Senior Vice President of Publicity and Marketing at Archie Comics, as well as a writer and an editor there. This podcast and all of our educational work is made possible with a donation from the Gaiman Foundation, as well as donations from listeners like yourself. If you'd like to support this podcast and all the other work that we do, you can visit our website, cbldf.org, and click through the donate button. We're going to start this episode by talking to Raina Telgemeier. She's one of the most popular cartoonists working today, and her books, Drama, Smile, and Sisters have all won numerous awards. She's also appeared on a number of lists that compile books that have been challenged or banned in libraries, and we talked to her a little bit about that. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Betsy Gomez. So, let's get started. Uh, First, I want to ask you about what role books and libraries played in your upbringing and what your relationship was with comics while you were younger. Okay. Um, Well, I remember learning to read in kindergarten, and that was after having been a big fan of stories and a fan of books and and words and pictures my whole life, because my parents were fantastic about reading to me and sort of encouraging me to be an independent reader from the time I was a very small child. And um, kindergarten was where it all began, where I realized I could read on my own, and I was super thrilled about that. So I spent my good share of time as a kid in school libraries and in public libraries and um, also in bookstores. And my father worked for San Francisco State University. So our typical Saturday date would be for he and I to go to the bookstore on campus together because it was only a few blocks away from our house. And we would just read and browse and look and and enjoy. Um, And so I've always had a, a personal connection with books that extended to the people around me. And it was also my dad who introduced me to comics. I think I discovered them on my own in the newspaper, but then he would take me to the store and buy me the, you know, trade collections of Calvin and Hobbes and Foxtrot and things. And so he nurtured that for sure. And then as I got older, he would start passing me things that he had read and that he wanted to talk to me about. And I'm so glad that he was kind of there to guide me through it when I was young. So uh, I was actually just rereading Smile this morning in preparation for this interview, and uh, I have to confess it triggered a little bit of PTSD about my own experience with the orthodontist. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, uh, and and so that's one of the things that's really key about your work is it's so highly relatable. Um, both your critics notice this, your fans notice this. Do you think that the comics format um, plays into this? Do you think comics makes it easier to uh, create a more relatable book than prose does? I don't really know. I think it's just the writer and the types of things they're writing about and how much of that the audience can relate to. But comics, of course, have the added bonus of pictures. And I have sort of tried to think about how if you make a film based on a book or if you make a film about somebody's life story, you have to cast an actor in the role. It has to be a specific person. But when you're reading a comic, because it's a drawing of a person, um, you can sort of put yourself into the role that the person plays in the story. And I think that makes it a little bit easier to imagine yourself in the shoes of a character. So, I don't know, I've always thought comics sort of had a a magical way of connecting reader to creator. Maybe that's part of it. So, we spent a little time talking about drama. Um, There's a sequence in (laughs) drama that focuses on a book that's especially important to the main character, Callie. Uh, What's the real-world analog to this book? And were there any books that had kind of a similar meaning for you? Was there a book that you would always go back to when you went to the bookstore with your dad? Um, well, Callie is really obsessed with a book about theater and stage production, and um, that book is, is just kind of analogued by a lot of theater books that I read when I was studying to create the book drama. But um, for me, the, the real-life equivalent is probably probably like my Art of Walt Disney books um, and my... I had a book about the creation of Disneyland, which I was really obsessed with and 
was really interested in animation when I was a kid and just wanted to understand not only how it was made, but the people who made it. And Disney was great about archiving, you know, the lives and the the careers of especially the nine old men, their their team of lead animators for the first several decades of their existence. Um, and so I just I just read them over and over again and looked at their art and, and tried to draw it and tried to copy it and tried to understand it. And uh, these were books that I often got as like Christmas presents. So I had a lot of them in my house and I just poured over them. Um, and I think when I was in stores and libraries, I would just look at books that had a lot of pictures in them. It didn't even matter what they were, if they were travel photos or if they were animal photos or if they were photos of places that, you know, like even even photos of people's art, places that didn't really exist, but that I wanted to believe existed so I could step into them. Um, I just, I think I was just always a very visual person. And that seems counterintuitive to reading maybe, but maybe that's why I wound up as a cartoonist. And I'm always trying to combine words and pictures. Did you draw a lot when you were younger? When did you start drawing? I don't remember when I started drawing. I've been drawing my whole life. Um, and for me, it was always kind of a necessary point in my day, meaning I would I would live my day, I would have my people and my adventures and go out into the world and do stuff. But then at the end of the day, I had to come home and draw. And I wouldn't be able to relax or sleep or do much of anything else until I had drawn. And as I got a, li- a little bit older, that started to become me actually drawing what had happened during my day. And so it was kind of like keeping a diary and then I had to go home and, hey, this person said this thing and now I have to draw it. And then I have to kind of remember how I felt in that moment and then draw that too. And so I did that between the ages of 11 and then up until I was about 25, almost every single day. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, bringing it back to drama, in, um, the American Library Association puts together a list of 10 most frequently challenged books. And the 2014 list, drama was the 10th most challenged book on that list. How did you find out about drama's inclusion on the list? I believe I found out about it from the CBLDF. <laughs> I think uh, Charles or someone emailed me and said, hey, you made the list. Congratulations. <laughs> and then, you know, the list got published. And then it, most of my peers, well, not all of them, but a lot of my peers are involved in books in some capacity. So there was a lot of excitement when it first happened. and people congratulating me and I kind of didn't know how to feel at first kind of like I know that this is probably a good thing just because it gets the conversation into the mainstream which I totally appreciate but I also feel like I'm a book person and I'm it's it's a little easier for me to speak through my work than it is to speak through my myself um, and so everybody wanted to talk to me about how I was feeling and what I thought about it and what it represented and I almost didn't have the words you explain myself. I felt like, well, I put all my thoughts and feelings into the book. And so that's the best representative of myself that I can give. But I mean, now that we've we've had some, some months and some time since the banning, I've obviously had a lot of chances to speak about it and to think about it and to process. And uh, I think I'm just grateful. I think I'm grateful not only that it happened, that the book got banned, but just that the overwhelming support that has come out as a result of that happening, um, that's nothing. That's been nothing but a positive thing for me. Mm-hmm. Did you? Um, I know that Sherman Alexi, anytime he gets banned or challenged, he kind of embraces it as a sales boost. Did you see anything <laughs> similar happen with drama? Was there more interest in the book as a result of the of the announcement? I'm not really sure. I I actually try not to keep too close of a watch on those things. I used to, and then I realized it was just making me crazy to be looking at my you know, Amazon sales rank and my Goodreads page and stuff, and that it's it's better for me to focus on uh, what's on my desk at the moment. But I believe that before the book was banned, drama had already reached the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list. And I think that's because um, even though the book has been out since 2012, it wasn't picked up by major retail outlets at first. I think people were a little trepidatious about it because of the content. 
Um, so it was in indie bookstores. Thank you, indie bookstores. And it was in libraries. And it was in uh, a lot of places. But it, it wasn't in the big box retailers for a little while. And I believe it was either earlier this year or later last year that um, that changed. And so places like Target were carrying drama. And as a result, a lot of people were like, oh, Raina has a new book out, even though the book has been out for two and a half years. Uh, they hadn't seen it up to that point. Because a lot of people, that's the only books that they really have access to or what are in the big boxes. Um, so that's just a long way of saying, I believe it had already reached the top spot on the New York Times bestseller list. And it has held that top spot pretty much ever since the banning. So maybe it's helping to kind of keep it in place. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if it's had a sales jump as a result. Yeah, well, and, and sales aren't necessarily just like the only indicator. I mean, is the what a lot of times, and there's actually been some argument that by banning a book, you're actually generating interest in the book, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think so, I've seen an uptick in people talking about it online, and I've certainly gotten a larger share of angry letters from parents since just just since it sort of went a little bit more mainstream. Um, so you get more hate mail as a result, too. I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I try not to focus on it. Well, um, now that you've had time to process it, um, Drama ended up on the list specifically because of a ban at an elementary school in Texas, and the ban was for sexual content. We weren't able to find out anything more specific, um, but it, in all likelihood, it looks like the ban pertains to the inclusion of gay characters and mm -hmm. an on-stage kiss between two boys. Um, how does that make you feel, your book being banned for sexual content? Um, well, I know that most people wouldn't have even paid any attention to it if, if it had been a kiss between a boy and a girl. And, um, you know, I've had a lot of naysayers kind of attack me for having an agenda to push and having, you know, a hidden motive in writing the story because the, the cover doesn't say in giant letters, there are gay characters in this book. Uh, the word drama does not appear as a giant rainbow. Um, and there are some people that think that it should, and I say, well, that would be a spoiler, so of course it shouldn't say that on the cover. Um, but for me, I mean, I was just writing about my own experiences and my own observations and my own friends that I really did see and experience and, and have in my life when I was in high school. So, you know, <laughs> to me, so it just, just is what it is. You were, were inspired by real life friends? Definitely. Definitely. Yes. So, um, drama isn't the first book to be attacked for the inclusion of LGBTQ content. Um, Alison Bechtel's Fun Home is a frequent target. Recently, CBLDF um, signed a letter uh, in defense of some books in Texas where a church group was making an organized effort to uh, have a pair of children's books uh, featuring non-gender conforming characters banned from a library. Why do you think LGBTQ content is um, such a frequent target of would-be censors? Um, that's kind of hard to say. I think we're just, we're in a really transitional period right now between kind of an old mentality and people realizing that human beings are just that and we're all different from each other, but we have certain things in common and, you know, why should you? criticize one person for being who they are when you are you who you are and vice versa. And so I don't know. I think I think it is a sign of progress, but it's just unfortunate that there are kids out there who are getting kind of booked under the rug as a result. So, you know, writing books for kids with LGBT content I think is super, super, super important. Mm -hmm. Um, do you feel like that the the band of ban of drama has had any impact on your work or might potentially have any impact on your work? I don't. And I I think that, you know, I I've been really grateful for Scholastic's support along the way and for, for the support from, from all of my various networks, including the C B L D F, just to kind of tell me that 
I don't have to worry about writing and I don't have to worry about censoring myself. And for me, the story is everything. I think I'm not like the, the book I'm working on now. There's no, there's no content. <laughs> there's no agenda. There's no anything. It's just a story. Um, just like drama was just a story. And I will hopefully be able to continue to write stories as they need to be told as my career goes forward. Can you tell us a little bit about your new book? Yes, I can. In fact, it's it's so new because uh, up until just a couple of weeks ago, I was being very uh, secretive about the title and about what the content was. But the book is going to be called Ghost. And it is about a set of sisters who move to a small town on the coast of California. And the younger sister is very sick, and her older sister is very concerned about her. Um, and the town's got some spooky stuff going on in it. So they kind of have to learn to adapt to being there and to the new friends that they meet. And I'm really having a good time with it. It's going to be out in the fall of 2016. I can tell you I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm not the only one. (laughs) I hope people um, will like it. How would you respond to somebody who filed a challenge against drama or really any of your books or really just any book? Um, Is there anything you would tell them? Um, Again, I don't feel like I'm as good of a representative uh, myself as I am through my work. I think I think I'd like my work to speak for itself. But you know, there have been a lot of resources published and a lot of really fantastic pieces that have sort of come out of this experience. And so I'd I'd like to believe that I can just point people toward those. I think it's a little easier to ban comics because it's easier to just flip to page 37 and go, oh my gosh, can you see this thing? This is this is ridiculous and I can't believe it. But, you know, you can do that without reading any of the other context in the story. It's a little bit harder to do that with prose. Um, you can, you can signal, single out prose very easily by saying there's a word in this book that I don't approve of. But with comics, it's, it's right there in the pictures. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm actually somebody who doesn't go for explicit content, and I don't enjoy seeing violence, and I don't enjoy seeing sex, and I don't enjoy seeing uh, crudity in in comics. And so, I tend to read young. I tend to read kind. I tend to read uh, sort of all ages friendly. And so, I, I have no problem with people putting every single one of those things into their books. And I, I don't think anybody should stop them from doing it if, if that's their personal passion and what they feel the story needs to be. Um, so it's, it's, it's tricky. Um, I write the kinds of books I like to write. I think other people should be allowed to do the same. Well, thank you so much, Raina, for speaking with us today and taking the time to talk sure. to us about your work and about censorship. And CBLDF really appreciates all the support you've given us over, over the years. We want to thank Raina again for participating and talking to us. Next up is Alex Segura of Archie Comics. Hey, I'm Alex Segura. I am the SVP of Publicity and Marketing at Archie Comics. I also edit the company's Dark Circle Comics imprint. Uh, And when not doing that, I write comics and novels. Cool. Uh, How long have you been at Archie? Well, it's interesting. I kind of went back and forth between Archie and DC, so I think cumulatively at Archie, it'll be almost five years. Well, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Um, roll, roll it back to, to your start in the industry, because you've kind of had a, an interesting path. Yeah, you know, I first, uh, my background's in journalism. I, I worked uh, at a couple of newspapers where I'm from in Miami, and um, I actually did some freelance publicity for Archie. That was my first kind of industry gig, but that was also long distance. Um, I worked at Newsarama first as a reporter and and writer, and then I moved up to New York to work at Wizard, Wizard Magazine, um, for a couple years. Then ended up going back to Miami before coming up back to New York to work at DC as a publicity manager, and I was there for about four years. Um, And then I went to Archie. Uh, to run their publicity department for a couple of years, came back to DC 
um, as their executive director of publicity, kind of overseeing the publishing PR. And just uh, a couple years ago, I went back to Archie, where I've been. Uh, I've been. That's my most recent spot, SVP, and and all that good stuff. What was the first thing that you did for them? You were saying you did it kind of freelance back in the day. It's funny, yeah. That's when uh, I I had just come back home to Miami from Wizard, and I was looking. I, I was working as a copy editor at uh, copy editor and kind of an on, online producer for the the Miami Herald. And I was still looking to keep a foot in comics in some way, so I knew. I knew some people at Archie, and my my thought was, well, there was I didn't think there was really anyone promoting their stuff, and I was I grew up reading Archie, so it was uh, I just reached out to them, mainly Mike Pellerito, who's who's now the president of the company, but back then he was editing uh, the Sonic books, and so through him and Victor Gorelick, just kind of doing a little bit of freelance PR, and that that was really just kind of stumbling into it. And the company, it's mainly, I mean, aside from, from you joining, it's been a lot of the same folks for, for a while, right? Um, I think the biggest change is just at the top when, when John Goldwater came in, and that was that was about six years ago. Um, and he he's, I think there's the, the company before John, and then there's the company now, and they're very different. Um, there has been, you know, there's always changeover in companies, big or small, so... Um, but you know, Victor's been around for 50 plus years. Uh, Mike's been there, I think 15 years. Um, I've been there off and on for the last five years or so. So there's a lot of consistency up there, but, um, I think the biggest tonal shift you, you saw was when John came in and then you, you, you got the wedding and then you got Kevin Keller and, you know, you started to see the, you started to see the company actually make some moves. Yeah, it just seems like prior to that, the, the institutional consistency and institutional memory seemed pretty deep. Uh, I think it's visually. I think people connect, you know, the look of Archie with the consistency of the story. I mean, you had Dan DiCarlo was the house style for so long, and then the the people that took over for Dan or, or start continued to draw after Dan left, you know, like Dan Perrin and Fernando Ruiz are, are in that same vein, if, if a bit more modern. So, um and, and there's a comfort factor to Archie having those digests, seeing them on the you know the newsstand. I, I remember it as a kid, and I think you always see them. There's a nostalgia there. Um, but I think John's concern too coming in was he didn't want the brand to be a nostalgia brand. So sure. And you know, it, to its benefit because there's a lot more potential there than just being this this kind of Pleasantville type property. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. What are some of the you, you mentioned Kevin Keller and and some of the other stuff, but you know, by the time this this goes live, I guess Archie number one will have been out for about a month. Walk us through through the launch of the new Archie a little bit because that was a pretty big event this summer. Yeah, and I think it all t- it ties back. I think Archie one is really the culmination of I think John's initial plan for the company to really push Archie away from being any kind of retro, you know, old school brand to actually being very vibrant and modern. So I think it, you know, it took six years to get there, but there was a lot of stuff happening, kind of churning away before we could get there. So the idea, I guess the most natural starting point for Archie One was when we were doing Death of Archie and we saw the response to that. It really was like a huge mainstream kind of tidal wave of attention. And even, you, you know, you can over-explain a comic book death to no end and the mainstream often, if it's big enough, will respond in a big way. You know, it was almost, you know, kind of death of Superman level for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that got us to thinking, you know, just how strongly the character resonates in the mainstream and also in comic book stores. I mean, we that was one of the first books that we really put a huge push in the direct market in terms of variant covers and really catering to the collector and the, the comic shop buyer. Um, so those two things together... And also with the idea that we got, you know, just like Afterlife and the Sabrina books, just putting a lot of, you know, different different takes on these characters doesn't mean that the fans don't recognize the characters. I mean, Afterlife has Archie and, and the gang, like, fighting zombies, but it's still Archie. You can still tell who they are. Right. Um, so that, I think, proved to us, and, and I think externally, that these are pretty flexible characters and flexible properties. And as long as the base of the original stories, like the digest stories to feature the classic stuff, but also new stories told in the traditional way, um, that fans would be open to different interpretations. You know, it's funny too. It's not something that you'd think about, but the brand loyalty towards Archie isn't 
you, you know, when you go into a comic shop, even a store that doesn't really have a heavy duty kids section, they'll always still have Archie. Um, there, there's yeah. a real loyalty there in in the hardcore fan base, including retailers. And I guess what everybody's learned, but but you guys in particular, is that it's not the classic Bob Montana Archie face that people are loyal to. It's it's the characters. Um, people and, love, and they can yeah. show up drawn by Francesco Francavilla. It's it's the the names and the concept and and the universe more so than just kind of that trademark face. Yeah, I think it's the you know the dynamic, and you know Archie is is fairly different from a lot of the stuff that's being put out there. It's, you know, teenage high school drama, which you're seeing more of. You're seeing a lot of different kind of takes on, on, on life. It's not just superheroes. Um, but I think I also found even when I was buying, when I was first reading comics that you never, you never really left Archie, you know, you'd go read Marvel for a while. And that's when you'd say, Oh, I'm not a Marvel. I'm a DC reader. I'm a Marvel reader or, you know, I'm an image reader now. Um, that's where you'd wear your team colors, but Archie was also always this kind of like neutral ground. Like everyone still read Archie to some degree. It's one of those properties that that everybody seems to have a fondness for, and I realize it, it hit me more so recently. Tom Spurgeon did one of his Five for Friday things where he asked people to talk about their favorite kind of secondary Archie characters. Oh yeah, that was fun. And but what you saw is so many people came through with some really deep cut characters and you realize like wow these aren't people that just kind of picked up an archie here and there these are people that really internalized that world in yeah, a way have, like, digest in their basement or something well they just you know this stuff really stuck with them like the the janitor and and the cook and the school and these images that are really kind of great designs but more so really characters that kind of stick with you in a in a way that it, when I was thinking about it myself, I realized that I was remembering characters that I read about when I was 10 in a really distinct way that, you know, sideline characters and books that I've read more recently wouldn't stick with me. Yeah, it's it's almost it's funny because the Archie books traditionally didn't have a continuity. You know, there was from one story to the next. And that that was the main gripe I think you'd get as you were older as an older reader. But they still resonated because it's like a sitcom. It's like, you know, like I'm, I'm blanking, like a really great sitcom, like Seinfeld or something. You remember the moments and the little bits and the bit characters that show up. You don't, you don't necessarily know like what season they showed up in or what episode it was, but they resonate in that way. Um, so I think the stories were a little more evergreen, which is great when you're just getting started in comics. There's no, there's no uh, reading list you have to go through just to understand what's going on. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Kevin Keller, because that's a fairly recent addition to the cast. And um, if I recall, it's an addition that was not without its share of controversy. Yeah, Kevin Kevin came to be when uh, when Dan Parent, who's a writer and artist and has, has done Archie stuff for almost 30 years... You know, John's first thing when he came into to came into to the company was he he took all the talent and brought them into a room and said, "I want you guys to you know try new things, push the envelope a little bit. If you have an idea, come to me, and you know I'm always open to suggestions." And and Dan was one of the first ones, and he said, "I really want to introduce a gay character in Riverdale, and, and I have this idea." And John was for it, and Kevin came out, and I I think the reception was hugely positive, um, and whatever negative feedback there was we as a company were fine with taking because we knew that having Kevin in Riverdale and it, it's funny because now looking back it doesn't feel like it was not that it doesn't feel like it was only six or seven years ago for Kevin to be introduced six years ago it feels like he's always kind of been around which is really a testament to the character and how important he was because aside from the first five I think Archie, Betty, Jughead and Reggie Kevin's probably one of the most important characters at the company because um, I think he showed to people that Archie was happening today. And I think there was always that kind of misconception that Archie was some kind of flashback series or it wasn't happening in the present. You know, we'd sometimes get like, why do they have cell phones? You know, they, they thought we were making a mistake. Um, and it really reiterated to people that Archie was happening in the present. And, uh, and it, it showed that we as a company weren't, weren't scared about showcasing the world you know the world as it is through through the filter of Riverdale you know Riverdale is a safe place a happy place um 
but it's also going to feature some diversity and you know feature diversity and and different kinds of people. Well, Kevin is the first character in a long time to have his own title, right? Outside of the the main cast. Yeah, definitely. He was the first the first yeah, the first new new kind of Archie character to have his own title in in a long time. I can't even think back to who was the last one. I'm going to show my my nerd card here and say it was Cheryl Blossom. Oh yeah, or it would have been like maybe Dilton's Weird Science, but yeah, Cheryl was in the '90s, so yeah. But uh, it's—I mean, it's still like his his book is ongoing, right? Yeah, it is. It took a little break, and we're going to bring it back with Life with Kevin, which mm-hmm. is uh, which we announced earlier this year, along with Jughead and the new Betty and Veronica. So that'll be Dan, and it'll be Jay Bone inking him, and it's going to be a slightly older Kevin. Um, you know, kind of leaving Riverdale and exploring and, you know, just, I would say it's a, a little bit after, you know, college age, a little after college. So it's a little bit more of a mature story, but it's still got the classic elements of a funny Archie comic. What what was the, the blowback like that you recall? You know, there was initial blowback, which was, you know, out of every new hundred or so people that added a subscription to Kevin, there was one or two people that said, you know, we're, we're not buying these anymore. And that was fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you politely say you understand and, and move on because, you know, Kevin wasn't going to go away. There was no point where we were going to say, okay, the, the pushback is so great. We're just going to pretend this character didn't exist. Kevin, you know, from page one and, you know, from the way he tells Jughead and, and the, his first appearance is really so smartly done by Dan. Um, so he was in, he was part of the cast and he was, it would have just been so bizarre to take that back. Um, and, you know, then Kevin very instantly became part of the team and um, he started showing up in all the books and he got his own title. We did see, you know, there was that million moms thing that happened when Kevin in, in Life with Archie, which at the time was kind of a flash forward book to two alternate universes, one where Archie marries Betty and one where Archie marries Veronica. And in both storylines, Kevin married his longtime boyfriend, Clay. Um, and that's when Million Moms protested, uh, you know, Toys R Us carrying the book. Um, and that actually helped the book sell out. It was one of the first Archie sellouts in a long, long time. Um, so I, I don't, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn by thanking them for, uh, for bringing so much attention to the book. I, I guess their complaint and this complaint gets leveled at, at, uh, Raina Telgemeier's book drama a lot is that just the presentation of a homosexual character to underage readers as if there's something wrong with introducing kids to the idea that gay people exist, mm-hmm. which is such a bizarre complaint to me. I don't, yeah, I don't understand. You know, once you start with that logic, it's hard to really have a discussion. There's no uh, conversation at that point, yeah. They didn't like that he existed. Um, they wanted it to not be available, and, you know, nobody really listened. And it was available, and it did really well. And, you know, Life with Archie kind of became was very much the testing ground for a lot of uh, forward-thinking stuff that Archie was doing as a company, um, you know, it's a really intense, funny, and really weird book. You know, it's got alternate dimensions, Dilton altering timelines. It's got, you know, Cheryl Blossom dealt with cancer, uh, the gun control, Kevin ran for Senate, Archie dies at the end, spoiler alert. Um, it's a really intense read. You know, we've talked about putting it all out in one big volume because it is kind of an epic unto itself. This summer, we saw the launch of Archie number one just straight Archie number one. I guess that's a re- relaunch at number one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what was the numbering up to when, when you cut it off and restarted? The last issue was six, 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 which, um, which is funny, which, uh, was a special kind of tongue in cheek episode by Tom DeFalco and, and Dan and Fernando and the Kennedys and just kind of Archie through the years. Um, so yeah, the, the book had been running a very long time and, uh, the relaunch, was was probably as well received a comic as we've ever had. I think review wise, sales wise, um, just word of mouth was hugely positive. Um, and we timed it so the first issue hit that first day of San Diego. So we kind of came in with a lot of momentum. Um, 
and that was a really fun show for us to just, you know, not, not just fans, but also the industry kind of came out and celebrated this character that's been around for 75 years. And, and you know, I, I, I'd like to think that it was pretty daring to re, reimagine the whole world the year, we're, you know, as we head up to celebrate 75 years of the character. So, you know, the, it, it's, it's not a surprise that people liked what Mark and Fiona did. It was just that level of acclaim was really a, a great, great thing to experience. Sure. And again, I think it, it speaks to the, the kind of brand loyalty and love for the, the concepts because they didn't stray at all from, from the initial concept. It's, it's really just kind of a, an, an updating of the, the look of the characters, mm-hmm. which again, isn't that far off from, from the initial designs in a lot of ways, but also Mark approached it with, um, Gosh, one of the things that that Mark has that you don't always think about is his sense of humor. And he really can approach stuff with a really light, clever touch. Um, Daredevil is a good example of that, but especially Archie. I mean, it's a really charming, clever, funny book. Yeah, Um, Daredevil and Impulse. And I I think the core of it, too, is that both Mark and Fiona are really big Archie fans. I mean, Mark worked there briefly as an editor uh, Fiona, you know, Fiona has been doing variants for us off and on for years. And, uh, she's, every time you chat with her about Archie, it's, she, she's a hardcore fan. She loves these characters. She grew up with them. And so I I think both of them came into it with a lot of love and affection for the world, but also Mark is a really savvy storyteller, especially in terms of, you know, dusting off or getting rid of barnacles when it comes to older properties, like, like, uh, you know, Superman Birthright, I think, is a really strong, strong example of how Mark does that. And, you know, Daredevil, and whenever he steps into a very convoluted world, he seems to get to the genesis, to the core of the character really easily. He almost, it's almost deceptively easy the way he makes it look. Um, but that's, that's one of his strong suits as a writer. Oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, he did the same thing with Captain America and The Flash, and he's, he's stepped into a lot of properties that you know, had long convoluted histories and just kind of cut right to the the core of what made them appealing. I remember as a kid or, you know, as a young teen reading The Flash and there was this, this huge, like, best of The Flash and it ended with this 10-page essay about the the, uh, the trial of Barry Allen. And, and by the end of it, I was so confused. But I still went to the store and bought The Flash, which was his Wally West run. And by page one, you know what's going on. It's like, my name is Wally West. I'm the fastest man alive. That's all you need to know. Here we go. Yeah. Um, and it still holds true to what he does now. Um, what What are the other titles that are that are running right now? Well, we have Afterlife with Archie, which is um, kind of the, the headliner of our horror imprint, which is Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa and Francesco... Um, and it's basically the zombie apocalypse coming to Riverdale. It's it's a straight up horror comic. It's not it's not done tongue in cheek or or uh, you know with light violence. It's very uh, uh, you know Roberto and Francesco are fans, really kind of hardcore fans of the genre. So um, there's a lot of homage and hat tipping, but also a lot of new ground being covered. Um, and going along with that is Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which is Roberto and Robert Hack kind of doing a Salem's Lot-ish take on Sabrina. Uh, it's not the same Sabrina from Afterlife. It's an old, it's a, I guess an alternate version. It's set in the 60s, which is also pretty cool. Um, and those two books have really come together to make their own imprint. So it's Archie, the main Archie stuff. Then we have Archie Horror, which is those two books, and, and Dark Circle, which is our superhero imprint, which we just finished up The Fox, which was Dean and Mark um, doing some off-the-wall superhero stuff. And... The Black Hood, which was Dwayne Swarzynski, who's a crime novelist and also does some comics, with Michael Gatos, who, uh, who a lot of us know from Alias. And that's a pretty dark noir tale. You know, it's a, a cop who uh, is addicted to painkillers. He, he gets shot in the face and has to battle addiction and his own demons while also deciding to take on this, this mantle, this kind of vigilante role. Um, so it's, it's not light by any means, but it's, it's, you know, it's what we wanted from these characters. So I I think dark circles is growing slowly, but surely. 
And uh, where, where does the Archie versus Predator and, and titles like that fall into this? Are they well? We you know, we've got the traditional stuff. The traditional Archie digests are are still you know we're, each digest features new stories, which I sometimes feel like people are surprised by. But it's not just reprints. Those little volumes all feature new content. You know, by the likes of Dan and Fernando and other people. And then there's stuff like Archie versus Predator, Archie versus Sharknado, Archie meets Ramones, which is coming up next year where it's just a fun way to have the property interact with someone outside and uh, you know people respond really well to them even even something like predator which is so bizarre and it's it's told pretty straight Alex's Alex DeCampi's story um, it's like a predator movie I mean it's, it shows up in Riverdale and, and characters die and you know it's it's not for the faint of heart but it's also really funny and charming and I think you know, those crossovers really resonate, and Sharknado was just bonkers. You were at Archie when when they stopped carrying the Comics Code seal, right? Right. Um, do you do you remember the conversation? Was it a did it just one day go away, or is there more to the story? I think we all sat down and just decided. Um, I think it was maybe a little bit after Marvel stopped using the code or made a a big announcement about the code going away on their books. Um, actually, it may have been a little bit a little bit after that, um, and we just kind of looked it over and realized that we didn't need uh, that seal to let people know that our books were family friendly. I think people, the reputation of the characters and of the books already stood much taller than that than that. So the idea was, well, you know, we can very easily take this away, and Archie as a brand and as a character will show will. You know, we'll, is enough of a symbol or enough of a guide to anyone concerned about content to know what's in the book. Sure. Well, you know, Gold Key initially didn't have the seal on any of their um, licensed properties because they just assumed that everybody knew that the Lone Ranger and, you know, any of the other licensed stuff wasn't going to be outrageous or non-family appropriate. So they just never had the seal and they never needed it. And I guess Archie, after... 60 years hit that point <laughs> yeah 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 and you know we didn't make a big big noise about it i think we did one or two interviews saying yeah this is happening and you know or situations like this where it comes up in conversation but um we well, didn't feel like it was a big publicity beat but we also felt like we put a lot of thought into it and decided we had pretty good reasons to move on from it it was at a point in the history of the seal which is something that you know we talk about a lot as a as an organization um where at that point it was just Archie and DC that mm-hmm. were still carrying the comics code, um, and DC dropped it shortly thereafter. But uh, had you did you ever have any dealings with them? Because by the end there were a lot of rumors that people were that there was just no response from from the comics code that there wasn't really much activity in that office. My only understanding, you know, kind of not being part of the editorial process beyond like the publicity role is. I know we were still sending them stuff. I don't know what level of response we got, but yeah, at that point it was just us in DC. We we stepped away relatively quietly in terms of how heavily we promoted uh, dropping the code, and and then they followed suit, and that was it. I think it, it still it still has a lot of mystery surrounding it, which is so weird. It is odd. There was a lot of conversation at, at the end there that people were sending stuff in with specific material that should have been cut just to see if anyone was paying attention and nobody was getting any response from anybody and wow was there any conversation from like people outside of the office when you dropped the seal was anybody interested at that point or was it just kind of a, a shoulder yeah, shrug there was really no reaction i mean we did a few interviews mostly in the comic trades just because it it was relevant but you know after that there was there was no hey i you know, you guys don't have the code, so obviously I can't give this to my kids. It was, it was silence. Yeah, it really had become a relic at that point. Yeah, I think if we'd done it like maybe 10, 15 years earlier, it would have created some kind of noise. But at that point, I don't think anyone was talking about it. And um, since Marvel had so loudly taken it off their books uh, after that, after they did it, it just seemed like expected it wasn't a surprise yeah well they made a real big deal about it if i recall yeah Yeah, no it was a big story um 
let's talk a little bit about your writing. Um, you've written a lot for the company at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, I've done a lot of one-off issues. I just, I have a real, real fondness for the kind of classic one and done Archie story or the short Archie story. Um, so my first one was just the kids going to Comic-Con and that was a lot of fun. And then I've done bigger stuff like Archie meets Kiss, which was fun and bizarre. And, and it's exactly as strange as you would think it is, um, not knowing the story, but that was just a situation where Gene Simmons had reached out to John Goldwater and said, we want to do this. Can we partner on it? And, and John mentioned it to me and I said, I'd be willing to write it. And, and that was fun in that I got to work with Dan Parent and had some surreal moments like signing with Gene Simmons at San Diego or signing with Gene and Paul at, at mm. uh, in LA. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun. It was when we signed, when Dan, Dan Parent and I signed with them, he was very effusive in his praise and, you know, he would, people obviously were there to get their kiss memorabilia signed or to buy the comic and get Gene and Paul to sign it. But he would, uh, he would say, you know, make sure you, you get Alex and Dan's signature too. You know, like he was very kind in ways he didn't have to be kind. And then there was other stuff like Occupy Riverdale. That was a very topical and relevant story at the time. Um, I think the Occupy movement itself has morphed into something else now that it's not, it's not as hot a button as it was then. But it was really, really interesting. And it got a lot of coverage from places that usually don't talk about not not just Archie, but comics in general. So, and that was very much just bringing the kids into, uh, you know, it was a very much a classic Archie story with this very strong political element to it. And, um, we've got Archie meets Ramones next year, which will be a lot of fun. Um, and that's, that's with Giselle, uh, who's a great artist and Matt Rosenberg, who's the co-writer. So that'll be really cool. So I, I guess I was asking about your, participation as a writer in the company because you're also a novelist and your interest is is crime crime fiction right um is there any conversation about doing uh about bringing that sensibility to to the company oh man i think there's a lot of room i think there's a lot of potential for like an archie noir or something like that but i just haven't really put my brain to it um i'm sure you don't have time yeah it's just it's just something that's always in the back burner like well that'd be cool you know you can almost see it and uh do a double indemnity type story with the characters or something like that. But, um, you know, I like to keep the world separate. I think, um, the novels are what they are. And, uh, that's really my passion is getting those books out there and really expanding on my career as a novelist and, uh, the comics, the Archie stuff is a lot of fun and I, I find it fulfilling. I think it's, you know, people underestimate how hard it is to a be funny and to be tell a short story that is funny with these characters. I think a lot of people come in saying, well, it's Archie, anyone can do it. And then you sit down and write it and you're just looking at a blank screen because it's not easy. I think comedy is sometimes harder than drama, especially visual comedy where, uh, you know, if collaborating with an artist is a lot of fun, but it's, it's also, you have to know the give and take and know, okay, I, I'm going to rely on the artist to tell that joke, or I'm going to orchestrate this joke. It's, it's, it's tough. And, uh, I, I think uh, it's almost like putting a puzzle together, whereas writing prose is you're in your own head and, and you're just kind of spilling it onto the page. Well, there's also an aspect to the Archie stories in particular where there's a certain precedent that sets a pace and a tone. And even when you kind of go off off that a little bit, like with the current Mark Wade stuff, there's still an, there's still a tone that's set... Yeah, and I think a lot of them were also kind of subversive, too, and just in the way that the character spoke or how the, the humor was executed. I, I think the sweet spot for Archie is to be funny, but also to be a little tongue-in-cheek, like to be a little kind of mischievous. That, And I think that was lost tonally in the company towards, you know, maybe around before John came back. Um, I think you see that now with Mark and Fiona stuff, that there's more of a wink and a nod. Um, and the characters are a lot more defined and have stronger personalities. Um, whereas maybe by like the late eighties, they, they'd kind of become a little generic. Well, they definitely, I mean, the kind of rivalry between Jughead and Archie and Reggie, if, as I recall in the seventies, that was a real through line of a lot of the comics where it was those characters kind of pranking, pranking each other and, and really, there was a real distinct rivalry and they were constantly like at each other's throats, but in a really funny way. 
Yeah, and Reggie was not, you know, he was kind of a jerk. Like, he wasn't just a nice, you know, like, I think he got softened over time. And I think also the rivalry between Betty and Veronica was softened a little bit to the point where they had to introduce Cheryl to kind of be this third third party. Uh, and Cheryl was, like, to me as a, as a reader, she was a game changer because you never, you didn't see a character like that show up in those comics. And her first appearance is her and her brother get kicked off the beach for you know her for being in such a skimpy bikini and Jason for bringing beer to the beach, which was such a such a bizarre thing. Um, but yeah, the characters were had been softened so much at that point that bringing in someone like Cheryl, they had you had to bring in other characters to kind of engage. So going back to what Mark and Fiona are doing, you feel like you're getting really down to the core of what they are. Um, and it's hard. It's hard to write those characters because someone goes into an Archie story with a lot of expectations of what the characters should do. So you have to play to that. And honestly, with like 75 years of story, it's hard to come up with a story that hasn't been done before in, in the limit, under the limitations of they're in Riverdale and this is what's happening. Not, not, not taking into account stuff like Archie meets kiss or Archie predator, like off the wall stuff. What, what else is in the works, uh, aside from, you know, Archie number one just launched. So what else is coming? Well, we have Jughead coming in October, and that's Chip Starsky and uh, Erica Henderson, and that's that's very that's still in the same kind of quote unquote New Riverdale world that Mark and Fiona have set up, and but it's it's that first script. I read Chip's first script, and it's really great, and it does it's not going to be what people expect. It's it's going to be. It's Chip. I mean, Chip is Jughead in many ways. <laughs> his personality, his vibe. And it ties in very nicely with what Mark Fiona are doing, but it also carves out its own space, which is great. And, you know, Erica, you know, I liked her stuff on Squirrel Girl. I think she brings a very different aesthetic to the character. Um, and then after that, uh, probably sometime next year, mid to late next year, we have Adam Hughes doing Betty and Veronica, which will be cool. This is a big question, but just give me a general uh, idea where where you think Archie's heading here in the next decade. So you've seen Archie, you know, we've done a lot of stuff in publishing, but I think what you'll see in the next couple of years is really Archie expanding into other places like multimedia. Um, you know, we, we announced Riverdale, which is going to be a show on the CW with Greg Berlanti and Roberto. Uh, just last week we announced that there's going to be a Broadway show with uh, Adam McKay, who does uh, a lot of Funny or Die stuff. So it's in partnership with Adam and, and Funny or Die. Um, and there's going to be some more announcements in the coming weeks. So I think, I think that's really where you'll see the expansion with the continued uh, moves in publishing. Cool. That sounds great. Um, it's an exciting new direction, and um, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun. So thanks for talking to us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, and thanks. Uh, really excited to be here. Uh, I should also add that Archie was um, a participant in last year's Free Comic Book Day with us. There's a yes. Kevin Keller story in in the CBLDF Free Comic Book Day book, which um, is still available uh, here and there at shows and, and with some uh, retailers that got a deep stock on those. So keep an eye out for it. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, and that was it was really an honor for us to partner with you guys, and uh, uh, hopefully it's the first of many things in the future. Cool. Thanks so much. All right, man. Thanks so much. Thanks to Alex for talking to us. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we depend on your support to do what we do. If you're interested in what we do, you can go to cbldf.org. There's a lot of information about the legal work we do and the general comics advocacy. My name is Alex Cox, and I produced and edited this podcast. If you have any questions, please email us at info at cbldf.org. We love your feedback. And please, please, please rate us on iTunes. The music is by Django Reinhardt. Thank you so much for listening, and please check us out next month.